A couple announcements on the back of your bulletin is a big list of them, and I'm not going to talk about all of them, but I am going to highlight a couple. Um, if you look on uh, towards the bottom there, November 18th at 5.30 p.m., uh, the Youth and Young Adults Thanksgiving Dinner Party. Uh, see Karis and Stephen about that. That's all I know about that. Uh, at 6.30, a women's Christmas tea on the 17th on December. 6.30, yeah, that's an error. 6 p.m. is what it should say. I should have caught that, sorry. That's all right. Um, if you noticed over here on the left, there's a table uh, for that uh, promoting T-shirts uh, that uh, for Israel, and it's um, raising money for two nonprofit uh, organizations that we're a part of in Israel, and one of those is uh, Spence and Kylie, and the other one, what was the other one for? Uh, Zachary's Hope. Yep. Okay. So uh, you don't have to pay anything today. Just uh, put your name on there, order something up, and um, then I'm not sure when they'll get to you, but they will. Before Thanksgiving, yeah, so we can all wear them at our Thanksgiving party on November 18th at 5.30. <laughs> not really. Um, okay, and then the last one, um, you see that lady back there in the red hair with a big smile on her face? She's always smiling with her smiling husband. There she is, yeah, give her a round of applause. Thank you. And you're applauding her because she is uh, asking you for some help. <laughs> actually, uh, there's, there's these sheets over here. There's actually a sign-up sheet over uh, on the table. And uh, this is, what they're gonna be doing is, is passing out food. That's, no, I'm. Thank you. So, so you're looking for volunteers. Yep, S Saturday, the uh, November 10th and 11th, Friday and Saturday. Is that right? Just Saturday. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So there is a sign-up sheet over there, and if you're interested in helping out, go see tomorrow. All right, I think that's it. All right, thank you. I told Rob that uh, it's not as easy as Christine makes it look. You did a good job there, Rob. Well, that's over embellishing it. I mean, I've left here as a failure. <laughs> you did do a good job. You had a lot of notes. They could have turned into a sermon, so I thank you for that. Let's go ahead and for today, <clears throat> I'm gonna bring you to several passages. We're a little bit off of, if you would, the grid of our norm as far as Proverbs, although there is an associative verse there and not necessarily in 2 Kings. Application always, of course, from where we've come. And last week was probably des describing a world, if you would, event that uh, all nations are right now becoming players in. But we're not there right now. We want to be able to focus. It was in part motivational because Dale taught yesterday and his teaching was very well received, very timely. It anchored on three desires or perspectives with regard to what the flesh itself is vulnerable to desire, but more overwhelmingly in terms of what God's heart is that we desire. So we're always going to be faced with the choice of whose desire will we satisfy? Will it be God's? Or will it be ours? Will it be because we were ignorant or because we were arrogant? You've heard me use those 
terms before, the message was personal. It was somewhat exhortational, but it was very, to me, inspiring because this is a season in which there is thanksgiving that we most notably acknowledge. We have a feast for thanksgiving. We can anchor it historically. It is certainly a part of our nation. We can also anchor it spiritually, probably even more so important that we are to give thanks for God in all things, for this is the will of God. And so when we look at these, if you would, contributing both teachings and life's experiences, I think it really is important to have, at least for today, maybe a prelude for this season that we're closing off, a season yet that we will, on a given day, fondly take notice of the Lord and appreciate the things that he's done, but also in a manner in which we can, per se, recharge ourselves. We can have a perspective that maybe sends us into this new year with an accomplished intent that will be realized in really a purposeful outcome, that God's going to do something very special with regard to perhaps where we would say, but it hasn't been working out that way. It just doesn't feel as though there's anything but another week to endure or a month. Or man, I can't wait to kiss this year goodbye to give a hug to anything that seems to be better than where I've been. So that's your prelude. The title plays off of something that you guys, I think, would recognize fairly sentimentally. It's a very sentimental movie to me. Black and white, so you got to go dial it back to the years in which that's the way films came out. But there were two actors, or an actress and an actor, and Donna Reed was one of them, and Jimmy Stewart was the other. They were leads in a movie that was titled It's a Wonderful Life. How many remember seeing that? How many have never seen it? i got to see the hands that have never seen it. Okay, you've seen it? Okay. You've never seen it? Okay. So that's going to be a homework assignment for you. She's one of our college students. That's her homework assignment. I do not believe there's any here that could not be touched by it. It's not theologically correct with Charlie the angel. We don't have any evidence in the scripture that there was an angel named Charlie. We don't have any evidence in the scriptures that there's a teen angel. But somehow throughout the millennia, we get it wrong. But we do have evidence that the movie was inspired because it deals with dysfunction as a result of a depression in the economy that basically turned a man to his face in what we would say despair. A despair that he desired to resolve by choosing to take his life with the utterance, I wish I had never been born at all. And then, of course, if you remember, there's a conversation in the clouds, little lightning bolts talking to each other in the clouds. They don't have the theology right on that at all. That's how Charlie got dispatched. Charlie, go and earn your wings. Go down there and help this guy out. But the point ultimately being made here is that in a time of desperation, in a season that should have been overwhelmingly looked forward to, he looked forward to nothing, probably much like Job, in which the incredible testing that he had endured, and even to what would be his wife's best counsel, which was just die. There was a plan that God had for Job that he couldn't have seen in that moment, that in the close of his book, he was blessed exceedingly greater than when he started off as a blessed man. 
So we're going to go to some principles because this is where I was inspired. The title, though, simply didn't conclude there. For today's teaching, it's a wonderful life, semicolon. Is it not? Exclamation, but a question mark that follows that, which, of course, is bad English. But maybe to question God is simply bad presumption that we think the worst as opposed to giving God the opportunity to make the best. And so that's where this is going right now. Sitting at a Bible study, a lot of men there, being addressed on three desires that could be both that which is exclusively God's to give and the reciprocal and the consequential, the choices that men can make that ultimately lead to a demise. Or if you would, an unintended and unintended consequence. A lot of us say, don't say that, you know, boy, I'm going to do this because, you know, I want what's coming to me or I want what's coming to them and I'll take the consequence of what's coming to me. And so I really felt that in this season, why not talk about it? Why not anchor ourselves in it? Why not have a different look scripturally as to how in the world did this start off? Dale started us off in Genesis through creation very quickly, but in particular in chapter 2, but then he whooshed us right into chapter 3 of Genesis, which was when the man and woman erred in their economy, their perfect economy in which there was nothing at all that lacked in their life, but a decision that still God had enabled them to make as to whether they would obey the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord was simply, of all that is in the garden you may freely eat of, but this one tree you are not to eat of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, we know that with regard to that, the brokering of Satan to seduce the woman to make a decision based on deception and then to pass that on in only the manner by which persuasion is seemingly a powerful attribute of a woman, Adam chose to disobey. You know that as the scenario. Both of them, God would say, in that chapter which rendered a decision of grave consequence, meaning because of what they did, we all have a time that's appointed for us to die and to go to a grave. We as believers, though, celebrate that that was rendered to us as impotent. The grave has no claim over us, but Satan still can claim things from us. If the Lord doesn't come back soon, which we believe he is, then there is a grave that awaits us but not an eternal judgment which disavows us, which puts us in a place altogether far more terrifying than anything that we perhaps even have entertained right now. Going back to the movie, it's a wonderful life because if you stuck around to the end of it, he's privileged to see how desperately that world began to narrow and how much influence he would have had had he not jumped, had he not been asking that he never be born. There are women and men today that say those things in their heart because of how hard life seems to be. It's a wonderful life. It's not a questionable, wonderful life. It is a wonderful life that has the severity of tension and trials and tribulation. This doesn't have any notes on it other than the title. If you're going, I don't have anything other than, maybe that's for you also something, how easily we can get ourselves distracted by what's flashing in front of us as opposed to what the Lord has spoken within us. So let's get to the scriptures. I gave you an accurate narrative of a perfect couple 
that ended up making a very consequential decision. But what you need to also know, which Dale was very clear to emphasize, is God had moved in compassion to cover them in skin that was different from the skin that we now would say was the carnal dressing on humanity that was intended to be robed in divine divine presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. We obtain that through our relationship with God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit within us. Let's move over to pertinent scripture right now so we can begin to find ourselves encouraged because it is a wonderful life. Is it not? That phrase, which is contemporary, is a question that is not intended to forge a question. It's really an affirmative statement. Is it not? Why, yes it is. As opposed to, it's not. Why, I guess you're right. Is it not? Yes, it is. Yes, it is a wonderful life, and it will be a blessed, wonderful, eternal life in the temporal challenges, tests, and trials. Challenges, tests, and trials. But if with the Lord all things are possible, then certainly it's got to be better than sending Charlie the angel What about simply the Spirit of God? What about the Word of God? What about the people of God? What about the mercy and grace of God? All of these things which the Lord has put at our disposal so that we do not dispose of the things that he says, that's special, that's righteous, that's good. It's good that we salvage, it's good that we redeem. This is a redemptive year. It is an important redemptive year. We do not know whether or not we will be in World War III, but God does. But we are in a war. Satan's waged it against Jesus. He hates the church. Let's see if we can do really awesomely, powerfully, and humbly better at being what God has said from the beginning. He created them, man and woman. He made them one. He ordained them to be fruitful and to multiply over the face of the earth. The church, as you know, as you sit here, you're his bride. Aren't you so happy that he loves us so much? that we know our errors which he's chosen to forget. If you would turn to Ephesians, I'm going to go there first. You can predict what it says. That's great. I'm going to pick it up in the fifth chapter at what we would call a part B of verse 18. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 Part B, right after the semicolon there. But be filled with the Spirit. Adam and Eve were in the very presence of God. They were saturated with the Spirit. And they were beautiful in their humanity. They were divinely created. They were powerfully consulted with by God. No confusion whatsoever as to what joy they could live out, the mission that was to be fruitful and to multiply and to tend the garden. The same words that God used to them is that which he speaks to us. Tend the garden. The things that I've given you, the seed which is the word of God that I can implant in you to save your souls, stay close. Let the worship music till your heart. Let the poetic language clarify truth. When we sing, 
we are articulating spiritual language, perhaps feebly. There's no doubt that at times the words that are sung in honor of the Lord speak to the hearers that are present. There's no doubt about it. Even if we're wrong in our pitch, even if a string breaks, the message from God as we worship him is what we want to say makes leaving these doors the opportunity for a wonderful life. Is it not? And so with this part B here, be filled with the Spirit. When you're attacked spiritually, know that you are filled with His Holy Spirit in residency, and you can call upon Him for empowerment to see you through the doubts and the fears. It may be what you would say, hard, striving, depressive, and at times anxious, but those things can be cast out as well. And it's important to know it's a tool. You practice it much like anything else. You apply it when the voice of the enemy whispers in your ear to do something contrary to the heart or desire of God. See, we have a human desire at times to be evasive, to move somehow synced and coordinated, but we have a tendency to be evasive as opposed to stand in the Word of God and remain persuasive in truth to whatever is compelling us to deviate from God's Word. Be filled with the Spirit. It moves over, though, in a discipline as well. If you enjoy worship, which we believe you do, and this church has been blessed with wonderful worship leaders and singers and songwriters. You're a part of it, by the way. We look at you as the genuine choir. We hear stuff that we could do better. We don't hear any faults from you guys. You guys are like, man, if we could just sing like them. They're so awesome. We leave here kind of, okay, cheer up. Come on. We're just on the gridiron for a little bit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Our life is an existence that was brought forth pre-planned. We didn't approve of it. God did. He put his stamp, his seal on it. We're to live our life in the expectation that he actually loves what he has created in us and for us. You've created things in your life. You've been allowed, even as adults, to be expressive in what ultimately brings you joy. And when you step back and look at it, there's a feeling of accomplishment and purpose. And it's because it's united with your understanding that God's the one that's enabled you to do that. Every single one of us was on God's heart before we even had an attraction to him. But when I look at this too, it's, it marks to me a discipline of what both husbands and wives, fathers and mothers ought to have within their arsenal of a purpose for living. Filled with the Spirit. You get that by request, and God does not withhold it. The exercising of gifts and talents for Him because he's the one that receives glory from you. The unification of you as husbands and wives, parents, in which he has you covered in his glory. And his intention is the inheritance of the word that he spoke to, obviously, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. The promise that he gave to Abraham, well beyond age to be paternal, and to Sarah, to be maternal, he did it. They had a job to do, to live life out extraordinarily in times that we would say probably felt pretty tough. We whine when our air conditioner isn't working and the four windows down isn't doing it. They lived a nomadic life in a hot place while following a God that was completely cool about everything 
that he's created, never once fretted. This is a discipline, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Verse 20, giving thanks always for all things to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The theme of thanksgiving found here in daily living. We take for granted giving thanks to God for our lineage. How many people can you go back generationally to where you can say, huh, I go back quite a ways. I can cite the early 1900s, not too much more than that on a British and Scottish side. British for sure, dad's side. We were talking about this with some guys the other day. I can go back to the early 1900s. Two twins made a decision to come to America. One didn't like it, spat on the ground, got on a ship, went back to England. And then some of them also were shipped to Australia. Because that's what happened when you were supposed to be picking potatoes and you became a horse thief. So I think I got a little bit of lineage in Australia. Scottish, I'm not sure about that. But I know this, put a kilt on me and I'll be real different in my attitude. <laughs> I am going somewhere with this, okay? Notice this, though. It's a principle. In the garden, when Adam and Eve received the word from the Lord, and they both knew it, the vulnerabilities, though, are allowed to be recorded Adam's vulnerability was disobedience. Eve's vulnerability was deception. It was allowed to be recorded that these perfect individuals had still vulnerability to one whom intelligent and created, powerful, and yet to God of nothing to threaten him at all. Satan, very persuasive. We have an adversary that is persuading culture to be corrupted, to laugh at God, to change the creative resources of God, to redefine the things of God. That's the enemy. That is the enemy at work and on task to defile the church of God, the people of God, the nation of God, Israel. We're at war. All you have to do is look at the headlines. That's a physical manifestation of a spiritual outbreak in which Satan is working as quickly as he can to bring demise to as many as possible. All he has to do is extinguish one life in which those lips never confessed Jesus as Lord. And whatever the Lord had purposed for that individual, it is vulnerable to that choice that a person did not make. God truly allows the choice of an individual to be recorded ultimately as a blessing or a curse to them. That's why we're passionate about saying, if you have questions about the Lord or about your life, go to the cross. If you've never been baptized, that doesn't save you. But the public decision you've made to show us that's your heart's desire is what may influence the very person who's holding on to their chair. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. This is what we are to do as those who are to be giving thanks to God. We submit to one another. It's difficult because we have talents and gifts that are extraordinarily different. But I have discovered that in submitting to Christy, I'm blessed. Resisting her, it just doesn't turn out right. Now, if it's a thing of God in which the Lord has established me in a principle by which I am to walk, that's altogether a different thing. But if it's a manifestation in which her gifting is to contribute to my success, that's an error on my part. We work together by understanding what the word means. And because of this work being so important, we're vulnerable to being, if you would, both disobedient and, if you would, deceived. We must take it to the cross. But I will say this, in my tenure as a husband, she's never balked concerning what I have presented to her as the word of the Lord in pilgrimage. This is that which God has spoken to me. And she's the first one that gets the U-Haul boxes out and packs them. Moving to this next area, 
which is important because the theme is how do we in these times really accredit God with a life that we're living that we can be grateful about even though we may be wounded in it that the enemy has had victory in some part of it how is it so the principles are laid out here this may have been if you would a great tool for Adam and Eve to have had the thing is to be argued is that they lived in the presence of God in other words as perfect as they were and as ever present as God was it's just showing us that they even had their own struggle we looked at that a couple weeks ago wives it says submit to your own husband as to the Lord for the husband is head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church and he is the savior of the body it's a principle and we are to both live it as we may have to relearn it it is a principle when there are fractured homes and I realize that as a pastor when you talk to a congregation there have been those marriages that didn't work out but we also see the redemptive hand of God who has made provision for that through his spouse amending the work of grace it's a beautiful thing that God has done and there are those who from marriages of past are also permitted to be free and to focus on God in a time of singleness it can be very confusing but not if we're invested in obeying the word of God there's something that I was considering as I was pondering this theme it's a wonderful life is it not I'm the one that right now says the question mark is not applying to me the exclamation mark the imperative is applying to me and I want to apply it to you everybody can reassess did we do it perfect was it great all the way through all I know is I'm a little bit older I change things if I could but I do not want my circumstances to change me in terms of what I believe about God and what I know is the beneficiary of obedience to God and that is he has the option by our consent to do what remake it make it better it's a wonderful life is it not I've been intrigued by dogs lately <laughs> and I can tell you why they've been on my face they've been licking my face they've been like they are just so cute and adorable we had a visitation last night at her house guess who came in two dogs Chloe wasn't so impressed but I was impressed because they were just in their disposition so humble and so just cute wagon and they weren't barking and they weren't biting Chloe was trying to be you know big protector of the house she wasn't but they all got along and I thought of that how really does the Lord touch our hearts and I think at times he reminds us of how inventive he is how much such a simple life can make us laugh and take joy but I really honestly believe when those things are put in my face he's saying see it's a wonderful life is it not that dog that's bringing you laughter and joy right now is the same one that I'm also giving you charge and responsibility over later just a little bit of cleanup to do in that dog's life and they're going to be looking to you to have a part of you and I just see this wonderful life that I'm being reminded of to not take for granted even though ultimately surrendering to it has an inconvenience like I said I'm changing two cat boxes again didn't have to but I prayed Lord would you bring back Christie's cat he did two cat boxes two suppers there is a submission though 
that is a requirement. And the Lord says that in this account, he starts off with the woman because that's the way God designed it. Any man would say that apart from the Lord, he can do nothing, and they'd probably go the next steps in, and without my wife, I'm nothing. I think any man would safely say that. Apart from God, he said it, I can do nothing, and without my wife, I am nothing. Certainly not able to do the things that I'm privileged to do and have a responsibility of doing. So I was bringing up this illustration with the dog, simply saying that at times the Lord allows these things that we take for granted because of the industry of, if you would, what it takes to care for them to be something that just discourages us. And it shouldn't be that. And I thought, what else does God encourage us through that's a mark of both innocence, but at the same time, great responsibility? And this is what I thought of. If you're a mom, and if you're a father, and you did any FaceTime with your little baby, do you know what you never smell on the breath of a baby? You never smell bad breath. It's as sweet as air could ever be. If you go back and remember it, it's as sweet as air could ever be. Even the chore of changing the first week or two of a baby's diaper has no consequential evidence of there being anything but pure innocence in that life. And what I am saying is that those pictures to me are what God says, that's what I've done in your rebirth. In your rebirth, I've made that baby an illustration of what I will do when somebody can say, but this is what you did. This is the mess you've left. This is how it smells to me. And all I have to do is remember the babies that my wife birthed, our children, and remember that every single one of them had this mark of innocence that the Lord allowed me never to forget. The puppies that make me laugh, that I cuddle, even while I have my own dog, but the responsibility in one sense in that industry of submitting to their needs. My wife, who has unique needs, but that if they are met, I'm a blessed person as a result of meeting those needs. It's a wonderful life, is it not? Rich, the remembrance of your babies, who now are adults, is what I do in the rebirth of a man and woman who have been defiled by the choices they've made, either in deception or disobedience. That's what I do. And for those individuals, if they are indeed, as a couple, not able to sink yet, may that be something that they can see illustratively as what I do. I bring innocence back in to the consequence. I cover that. As I did with the first couple, I cover it with every couple. It's a wonderful life. Is it not? Because if it is not, what are we grasping for? What's the next thing that is simply by line item just another thing to check off? The Word of God gives us principles right now on how our hearts should be making melody, how we're to be interpreting wisely the wiles of the devil, how we're to stand firm in the principles of union. We've got a responsibility. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. He doesn't say submit to your own husbands as to a barking, growling dog. He's saying, your husband has a lordship that I'm working on. Do you know that when God says that, he's working on us to be in likeness, similitude to who he is? Do you know what it's like trying to be equal in personality and performance to Jesus? He's put a high bar there. That high bar provokes a man to be on his face. 
There's no way that we can live up to that expectation unless our desire is to please God to the purpose of his word and to take seriously that in the charge of a woman being, if you would, submitted, there's an expectation of how we are to behave. But somebody's got to say, well, this is what I know about my responsibility. Therefore, it's not contingent on the other person being successful. It's strictly got to do, can you do your part and let God do his part? If you're a woman, submit. If you're a man, it does say very clearly as the husband, there's going to be a submission required of you to honor her. For, and we've known this in Galatians, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. If you do not love her in the manner by which I love you and have given you even a lordship over her, you're making it very difficult for her to exercise in the area of the need not to be deceived, but to compliment you in obedience that's essential. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So it can be argued, but that isn't what the Lord is saying. It's affirmative. For a wonderful life, bring these principles out in how you live. Let God then solve the problem of what the husband may not be doing. Let him be the problem solver. Let him put the husband in the predicament of how do I get out of this mess, Lord? Well, I was hoping that you would talk to me about that, Richard. I was wanting to have a conversation with you, and I'm open now for an answer to give you. You have to trust the Lord, and the husband has to be the one that seeks the Lord. The church is who we represent. That's what's being said here. The husband and wife are a picture of a church that works dynamically because of the filling of the Spirit and personally because of who you influence. And therefore, husbands, verse 25, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So in having a wonderful life, because it is, is it not? Then husbands are to take this as their command. And it says quite simply, to love your wives just as Christ loved the church. That's an anchor word for you gals. Maybe not able to perfectly do it, but it's a word that you can say, I hold that accountable then. But then you also have to be held accountable if so easily deceived. And if he's so easily disobedient, you've got to come to a conclusion. You do not belong apart, but to be together. To empower one another over their vulnerabilities and to allow each one to be exceptional in the accomplishments that God has purposed. Why? Because Thanksgiving's coming. Thanksgiving's coming. We want to give thanks for what he has done for us. There's nothing like looking back over the inheritance of children as a blessing. We've got to be praying for them. Well, how can we do it if we're not together with each other for that very purpose? Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for, that he might do what? It's a sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Gals, it's not saying you're dirty. It's the picture of ultimately what we do when we gather here. We're getting washed in the water of the word together, but it has an oversight to it. It's not independent of the men. It's dependent upon us under the lordship and leadership that God has given to us that you get washed. I get washed too. You may not like it, but then ask a guy whether he likes being called a bride. We've all got tensions about what does it mean to be submitted to God. That's a harder one for us to broker with. It's the language that God uses. That's an honorable word that God has given to two distinct genders, and the man has to submit to it, not in a weird way, but in a beautiful way in which he says, wow. He didn't call the church the husband of the Lord. 
He calls her his bride. He adorns her with beauty in the giftings of the spirit. It's an important word to hear that we might be able to say it's a wonderful life. Do you know in the movie that the reason he was able to say it's a wonderful life is because he was broken ultimately in the confession that he had to live out. He wished he hadn't been born. And so if you would, that was arranged. And when he saw the consequence of not being born and all of the lives that actually he had touched, not taking into account how he was being used by God influentially, he just pleaded and begged, I want to live. I want to live. I want to live. Charlie came through. He got his wings. Things were changed. And everything that was in the heart of this man to do well was achieved because ultimately he appreciated what he had forgotten. He was far more valuable than he ever imagined. And ladies, you've got to presume your husbands are far more valuable than they perhaps even think of themselves. Sometimes we get, if we get validated at men's breakfast. Hey, good to see you, bro. Good to see you too. Hey, you're looking good. Thank you. I've been working on this figure for quite a while now. So what are you doing? Cooking? I mean, like cooking? Yeah, I've gotten into cooking. Help out with a couple of meals. We sometimes get built up in our fraternal meetings. But there's nothing like the sororal and fraternal meeting of a husband and wife appreciating each other dramatically and dynamically. Love their own wives because it says in doing so, we love ourselves. That's saying something pretty powerful. It's actually corrective. We will do anything. It says, obviously, that we have no problem loving ourselves, spoiling ourselves. Women can do the same thing. But the charge is to the man that whatever we do to embellish our lives, to make it more meaningful, more special, that is due our spouse. That is why we work. That's the reason that there is great expectation on ultimately satisfying what may be indeed a divine need that she has. It doesn't perfectly align in terms of we get it, but we ought to be continuing to be a study of it. And it says that in so doing, no one ever hated his own body. This is speaking both of them, but certainly the man, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Closing in this passage, which is equally important, chapter 3 of 1 Peter, I'm not going to be doing much explaining right now. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some, notice this, because this can be the excuse, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. The power that God has given to you to win over a disobedient husband, it doesn't see a deceived husband, a disobedient husband is through the discipline, not of your chastening, not of your absence, not of your criticism, but it says of this, your confidence, that without a word may be won by the conduct of your lives. This is the Lord giving great compliment to you, the conduct that you have the opportunity to persuasively show the love of God, the mercy of God. You appreciate grace when it comes to you, the favor of God with nothing that you did to deserve it, the mercy of God. He spared you from a devastating consequence because of his love. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, the wearing of gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart 
with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle. The incorruptible beauty. Your beauty, woman, is not corruptible in the principle that's being laid out here. Gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. It doesn't mean that you do not have personality that breaks through, provokes laughter, causes calm to settle the storms in people's life. But it is something that, in my opinion, as this remains anchored here for us, is a key. If you go back in the movie, some of you may, Donna Reed really lives out her role excellently to the time that we see that he makes his exit from the home to take his life. We know nothing else except that she's there when he returns. Everything about Donna Reed is his wife. They were college companions. And when they married, they started off with a home and they built it, a stick shack that they turned into a mansion until things turned over. But it's a wonderful life because when he turned around in whatever split second that was, her arms were open. Families began to merge and saturate them. In the blink of an eye, they didn't really know what happened because this was just him in isolation. I think the Lord is really just saying that to us as a church. Let's make our marriages count. If you had a hard one, it's all right. God knows about those. If you've had a redemptive one, praise God that you're examples of that kind of a work because God's not through with any of us yet. If you're a husband that deserved to be put on a chain and kicked out and fed only a bone that you could gnaw on, give her the puppy eyes. Let her show you a gentle spirit and you show her that you belong in the house. Become a child again. No bad breath. It's as sweet as a breeze. Nothing that's eliminated that has anything that repels. It's the rebirth of a man. It's the rebirth of a woman. I agree with you. <laughs> Lord, we ask for your blessings. Thank you for 